Hi there, welcome to episode 9 of Paranormal Blip. In today's episode, we are going to be taking a look at the physical effects of UAP encounters. And we are going to be covering quite a lot of ground, actually, in terms of zipping around the world, looking at lots of different cases where people have come away uh, with illnesses or injuries and sometimes led to death itself. So, and some big cases that we're looking at as well. Yeah, so that's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. Now, first of all, though, we're going to go into the news because this uh, week, uh, the surprise uh, publishing of a book which is causing massive numbers of waves. Uh, this guy called James Lukaski, who's a rocket scientist um, at the DIA in the United States. What's the DIA stand for? Department of Intelligence Affairs, maybe? Something like that. But basically a kind of intelligence bureau in the US government. He was there for a long, 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 long time. He um, he wrote a book. Uh, he uh, read a book. He read a book called uh, Hunt for the Skinwalkers. Now, this book, Hunt for the Skinwalkers, is a bit of a classic in terms of paranormal, um, you know, books. And it's written by George Knapp, the uh, debonair um, Las Vegas reporter, and Colm Kellner, Dr. Colm Kellner, the Irish... Uh, kind of like investigative um, paranormal investigator who has been based for or was based for many years at Skinwalker Ranch. He was hired by um, Robert Bigelow, the billionaire um, Las Vegas businessman, right? You keep it up? Yeah. So um, basically Bigelow owned this place called Skinwalker Ranch, which is a ranch in Utah, where there's like hundreds of years of um, recorded uh, paranormal activity. Uh, when he got there, he set up his own kind of group of scientists and experts, including Colm. I think a lot of them were working under Colm Kellner um, to uh, kind of get as much data as possible from a wide range of paranormal activities, including... Uh, kind of like anomalous anomalous uh, lights in the sky, lots and lots of like UFOs, essentially UAPs, um, strange creatures like a dire wolf, which hasn't been, like it's been extinct for thousands of years. A dire wolf turned up, very odd, incredibly strange things. And all of these things were put in this book, Hunt for the Skinwalkers. And James Lukatsky, the rocket scientist, read this book and he was working in the government still and he thought, oh, wait, this is mind-blowing stuff. Let's get this around. He wrote on DIA-headed notepaper to Bigelow saying, come on then, let's have a bit of this. Let me get down there, boy. <laughs> and Bigelow said, oh, yeah, please, come along. Now, it's really fascinating stuff. When Lukaski went to Skinwalker Ranch, he experienced this um, paranormal event that set him on the train to setting up a uh, essentially a collaboration between Bigelow's group and uh, the U.S. government. Okay, what he saw was uh, kind of floating in the air in a kind of like a, an angle that only he could see. He was in a conversation with three other people. Uh, sorry, two other people. So three people in the room, but where it was in the room, only he could see it. So the kind of you know it's like behind the back of the other two guys in the room and what it was was essentially a kind of yellow metallic tube um, bent in a particular way and in a kind of yellowy mist or yellowy fog and it was there it kind of appeared it was there for about 30 seconds and then it disappeared and he said that the closest he can the most similar thing that it looks like is that iconic album cover from Mike Oldfield Tubular bells. Do you know tubular bells? It's got that strange shaped uh, kind of metallic tube floating. Is it like a, over a field or something like that? You probably know. I guess that is a tubular bell. Is that a tubular, is a tubular bell an instrument? I think it must be, is it? Maybe it is. I don't know. But anyway, that's what he said the shape looked, uh, you know, most like, which is interesting, of course, because as we know, 
Tubular Bells is the brilliant uh, music used by your man in um, in The Exorcist, isn't it? Like it's the Exorcist music. That's interesting because, of course, Poltergeist activity is part of the kind of panoply of paranormal uh, experiences that uh, folks at Skinwalker Ranch sometimes observe. So there's beautiful little connection there, isn't there? Well done, Mike. Well done, Mr. Elfield. So now we're going to have a little listen to Joe Mergia, who did a brilliant breakdown of the book. I've got a link to the book, by the way, and a link to Joe here, UFO Joe on Twitter. And he talks about something that he actually talks about the thing that we go on to talk about in the rest of the episode. Okay, so it's kind of fitting this little bit of audio. This is uh, Joe talking about um, some like defense intelligence people coming to the ranch and the kind of physical uh, effects that uh, kind of happened after they came to the ranch. So here's Joe. All five actively serving the intelligence agency personnel who visited the ranch during the OSAP Bass program experienced profound anomalies while on the property. And even more importantly, all five brought something home with them. So, yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's not just a couple of people. Um, That's a good point. It wasn't like one out of 20 brings something home. It was 100%. No. And here's some of the serious stuff from the book. Okay. The Axelrod family also suffered health health effects with the wife, the wife suffering flare-ups of systematic lupus uh, and Renaud's disease. Both Axelrod's teenagers also suffered intense flu-like symptoms at different times following anomalies in their home, with the most serious medical symptoms occurring in the younger teenager after being attacked on the night of February 7th, 2011 by blue and red orbs in his room. Uh, without without breaking medical confidentiality, it can be unequivocally stated that a large number of people who brought something home from Skinwalker Ranch also began to experience autoimmune disease in one or more family or household members. So that's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And um, Bass, by the way, was Bigelow's uh, organization. And ORSAP was the organization that Lekaski then set up, the kind of government department that got funded for a couple of years. And there was always this kind of problem with funding the thing because genuinely people in the Pentagon thought that they they were dealing with demons, demonic forces. Um, so they it was very difficult to kind of continue funding it. But OSAP stands for, I think it stands for Advanced Aerospace Special Weapons Access Program, something like that. And uh, Colm Kelleher, he uh, hired 50 people within six months. They collected a massive amount of data in the couple of years that they were running. So this new book, which is called Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, is the inside story of OSAP. And it's really interesting because it's the first time that James Lekaski has uh, gone on the record, which is brilliant. It was, took them 14 months to clear it with the US Department of Defense, um, you know, but it has been cleared and it is out and it does contain extraordinary um, revelations. And it's interesting because there's a kind of split in the UA, UFO community, especially on UFO Twitter, which is always a bit of a bad place anyway, uh, where you've got the nuts and bolts guys going, oh, no, I don't believe a word of it. You know, you don't turn to me about paranormal stuff. I'm just interested in actual UFOs. Like, <laughs> I mean, seriously, like these people are like, you know, what you're going to do, pal, is get on the UFO bus, right? And you'll find on the UFO bus, sitting next to you, is a portal. And through the portal is an invisible man, four foot tall. Oh, that reminds me. Uh, they got, this is a beautiful link to episode eight, remote viewing. They got Joe McGonagall in, Joe Mc, McMoneagle, whatever his name is, in, to remote view Skinwalker Rants, and he said... Yeah, there's an invisible four-foot guy like around you trying to communicate, but you can't bloody hear him. But that's good, isn't it? So it's all in there, you know. You've got episode eight in there. At the end of the um, uh, in the archive, I'm putting in this beautiful thing that Nap comes out saying, oh, yeah, it's Shadow Biosphere, episode seven. Thank you very much, by the way. Very popular with the listeners, episode seven, the Shadow Biosphere. So it's really interesting that... Um, Nap talks about how, you know, 
life, uh, not as we know it, has been here for many, many years, probably longer than us, and it's kind of all around us. That's what his... He's starting to kind of have this um, kind of conclusion, if you like, after working in this sphere for like years, you know, like 30 years or so. So anyway, that's the, uh, the that's the book. I'll put the links up on the uh, in the episode notes as I normally do. Now, if you are interested in uh, following me on Twitter, we've got 500 people plus 500 people following me on Twitter. Uh, please do. It's Paranormal Blip on Twitter at Paranormal Blip. Yep. Uh, Instagram is paranormal underscore blip underscore podcast. You can email me if you're not on social media. My email address is paranormalblip at gmail.com. And if you do like the show, please do tell people about it, share it, like it, rate it, review it on Apple, you know, give it five stars. Oh, yeah, lovely. All of that kind of stuff, which I always kind of cringe having to say this a little bit. But of course, it does help if you like it, you know, tell people about it. and. It's incredible. Like I've had another amazing week of people telling me about their paranormal uh, experiences, which is really, you know, it's fascinating stuff. And if you're not on there, like then you're not really, if you're kind of interested in UFOs and only UFOs, this nuts and bolts contingent, then really you got to keep an open mind, you know? And like Joe Merger says at the end of the uh, thing that I just played you a little recording of, that's he's with Sean Rash in that clip, by the way. Um, him and Sean do a good uh, kind of overview of the book. Uh, he says, like, you know, if you are if you do have an open-minded friend, then get them both books, Hunt for the Skinwalkers and, which is essentially the follow-up, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. So we're going to go into the main show now. But first of all, the spooky little bloops. Now on to the main event, the question of uh, UAPs physically affecting people, um, causing injury, causing illness, causing death. Now, I was really first kind of awoken to this uh, topic by um, a book called Evidence of Extraterrestrials by Warren, I think you pronounce his name, Agius, Agius maybe, Warren Agius, who lives in Malta, I believe. And it's a very good book. I got it a couple of months ago. Uh, uh, the kind of subheading, if you like, or the subtitle of the book is Over 40 Cases Prove Aliens Have Visited Earth. So that's pretty astonishing, isn't it? Now, in the book, there's a couple of cases that go against the, uh, you know, there's, there's a kind of thinking in the kind of UFO world that is, well, I mean, you know, not shared by everyone, but certainly shared by some people, which is incredibly naive that, you know, they're all just like love and peace and all that kind of stuff. Now, I know that lots of people that have had experiences do kind of conclude that it is all about love and peace and loving each other. And, you know, I don't have any qualms with that whatsoever. No qualms with that whatsoever. But at the same time, there is evidence, as the book's title suggests, of um, UAPs being a threat and UAPs uh, doing some kind of extraordinary things in terms of, uh, you know, mystery disappearances. In one example, I'm not going to go into it uh, too much, but the disappearance of Felix Monkler and Robert Wilson, which is chapter 36, by the way, page 247 in Warren's book, uh, which is a really good book. I recommend it thoroughly. Thoroughly. Uh, that's amazing. I mean, basically, there's this. Uh, these dudes were flying over a lake. Their uh, plot merged on the old radar with something that they were kind of describing, you know, like a UFO they were describing. And, and then they disappeared and they haven't been found again. Um, so that's slightly kind of worrying stuff. But the first case that we're going to look at is from this book, and it's a quite a kind of famous case in Australia. Uh, this is the disappearance of Frederick Valanchik. Frederick Valanchik, and essentially this guy was a a pilot, a private pilot. He had uh, he just worked in a shop as a kind of shop assistant, but he was absolutely into. Um, you know, kind of getting his license and flying and doing enough hours in order to become a commercial 
like trained to become a commercial pilot. So he was a private pilot. He had over a hundred hours flight experience, um, you know, under his belt. So, you know, not nothing. He's kind of like a, a established private pilot. And on this day, he decided to go to this island in Tasmania from the kind of Melbourne area to Tasmania. This was 1978, so October the 21st, 1978, to pick up some crayfish, as you do, you know, crayfish. Um, but he never made it because, well, we, we there's a incredible uh, transcript of his last conversation on Earth. Well, the Earth that we know, anyway. Uh, Shadow Biosphere, episode seven, um, <laughs> uh, which is which has been kind of duplicated and like re recreated by lots of people, and it took me ages. Like. These people, they don't, can't do a bloody Australian accent. So the one that I'm going to play for you is actually from an Australian radio show. And because they're Australian, they don't need to do the accent, you know, because it's like, it's their accent. So anyway, the transcript with Valenchik, the pilot, and the guys in the, um, you know, air traffic control in, in Melbourne is in Warren's book, okay, Evidence of Extraterrestrials. And it's chilling stuff, right? So you're going to hear like a quite a good, it's not the original tape, yeah? The original tape doesn't exist anymore. So it is a reconstruction of it. But also the other reason why I'm playing this as well is because it has an interview with his brother and it has an interview with the guy that uh, runs Melbourne, or at least used to whenever this radio show was made, uh, runs Melbourne's UFO group as well. So it's a very interesting case. Essentially, this this uh, guy was uh, 20 years old. He went out, you know, it's all kind of explained in the audio clip, but he went out on his own in this little Cessna, which is like a tiny little plane, flying, you know, great conditions. And he sees something that he can't explain. He radios uh, Melbourne and you know, listen to this for what happens next. It's chilling stuff. If you're listening at, at home on your own at night, you know, this is, this will like get you sweating. All right, listen to this. This is a reconstruction of his last conversation with air traffic control in Melbourne. Melbourne, this is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000 feet? No known traffic. Seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000 feet. What type of aircraft is it? I cannot confirm. It's four bright, seems to me like landing lights. At about 10 past 7, Frederick Belentich reports to Melbourne that he's encountered a strange aircraft. But that it isn't an aircraft. It's a UFO. About 10 minutes later, he disappears. His brother, Richard, and the rest of his family have been living with that mystery and the tragedy of it ever since. I remember he was very passionate about flying aeroplanes. The way that Freddie used to understand straight away what to do with an aircraft and how to do it, and he didn't want to make mistakes or, you know, have any blemishes before he'd become an airline pilot. And I remember he always used to say his pilot error is always the fault of most aircraft crashes. The Valentich Cessna 182 left no trace, not a scrap of metal or a smear of oil on land or water. Bass Strait has claimed scores of ships and planes, but UFO researcher Paul Norman wasn't surprised something strange was going to happen that night. He too's lived with the mystery for more than 20 years. He's president of the Victorian UFO Research Society. Six weeks uh, prior to the Valentich disappearance, we were receiving increasing numbers of objects and erratic moving lights all around the area, and uh, they reached a peak that very weekend that he disappeared. It was uh, about three days before we could get away from the telephones and start following up what was um, going on. All around Bass Strait, they were seen by people along the Great Ocean Road upon the uh, Geelong Highway over there. And uh, last witnesses and last report that we heard from were man and his two nieces and son out at Cape Watway actually saw both the aircraft 
and the object above it? The aircraft has just passed over me at at least a thousand feet above. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? No known aircraft in the vicinity. Seems to be playing some sort of game. He's flying over me. During a period of activity, uh, there's uh, a large object operating with small objects. And this was what was happening all around the Bass Strait, King Island, and all that. The witnesses uh, said they could see the lights of the aircraft and the object above it. One of the nieces said, oh, um, Uncle, what is that? And he said, oh, it's an airplane light. And she said, no, I mean that above it. And he leaned over where he could see there was an object above it. Well, the Sierra Juliet, it's not an aircraft. It's... Can you describe the, uh, the aircraft? As it's flying past, it's a long shape. I cannot identify it. It has such speed. Yeah, we don't prolong the story about the UFO. This is something that my brother described. You know, he described it the way he's seen it. Um, nobody knows what it was. Nobody can answer that question. It's before me right now, Melbourne. How large would the, um, the object be? Seems like it's stationary. What it's doing right now is orbiting. The thing is just orbiting on top of me. It's also got a green light and a sort of metallic-like. It's shiny on the outside. It's just vanished. I went to school on a Monday and it was just a circus. Every kid wanted to know what had happened. I think that was the biggest mistake I made going to school. Instead of it just being a crash into the sea, it had this UFO thing and, well, that changed everything then. I'd become a big novelty. These people that were a distance away, all they could see was the green light. They were too far away to see the aircraft, but he was describing a light which was maneuvering near his aircraft. And he thought at first it was uh, military aircraft and uh, traffic control uh, told him there was no uh, aircraft in the area. Is the aircraft still with you? Say again. Is the aircraft still with you? Now approaching from the southwest. The engines are rough idling. The sea is coughing. What are your intentions? My intentions are to go to King Island, Melbourne. You see, above him where he was flying, in military airspace, some people say, well, maybe he stumbled across something that he wasn't supposed to see. That strange aircraft hovering on top of me again. It's hovering and it's not an aircraft. And then the transmission went blank. The last words of Frederick Valentich were followed by 17 seconds of a mysterious noise. Those who heard it thought it sounded like something metallic was scraping the side of his plane. So that's an extraordinary case, and it's you know it's still a mystery, and um, it's interesting. Like all these years later, the pain of the of the brother and the kind of stigma that he had to face at school, terrible thing. And it, by the way, that reminds me. This great thing that um, Andy from That UFO Podcast, which I thoroughly recommend, he started to interview uh, the experiencers who worked with, um, what's his name, Blumenthal on that article for the debrief that came out a couple of weeks ago that I spoke about last episode. And he had an excellent uh, interview you know, the, the Andy is Scottish, so he's kind of like a kin to me, you know, because I'm Scottish. He's a kin. You're not king, but you're not king. <laughs> That's, um, who is that? That's Anthony Hopkins, isn't it? Yeah. Thor. Do you remember? Anyway, you're not king, but you are kin, Andy. Um, what's it going on? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a very good interview with um, the experience, one of the experiences in that Blumenthal piece for the debrief. Her name is Robin. So, and that's really good because he's got such a big platform. I like messaged him and said, you know, thanks for doing that because, you know, we've got to get rid of the bloody stigma, man. It's terrible. We want a, you know, world where people are kind of happy enough to, you know, talk about things that are these kind of often life-changing existential moments in their life. You know what I mean? Rather than like, you know, not talk about it because they don't want to be ridiculed. 
Um, nevertheless, uh, on to a fascinating case. Now, this is Brazil. This is Corrales in, in uh, the Amazon area of Brazil. And this is known as Operation Plate or Operation Saucer. And this is, um, I'm going to go to AJ Guevara. I think it's maybe AJ Guevara. And he is a, a Brazilian ufologist who's been looking at this Operation Plate for, for years. And he really is like, you know, an expert on it. Essentially, I mean, it's like it's, it's you know, certainly at the kind of threshold of, um, you know, UFOs and the paranormal, right? It's right at that threshold where it is more paranormal than, than UAP. Basically, what happened was, and there's like, you know, bundles of evidence for it. It definitely happened. There's no question about it that it happened. What happened was it's estimated that 1,000 people were attacked by UAPs um, that were using light to draw blood out of them. Okay, draw blood out of them. 400 of these thousand were seen by one doctor who kind of took it upon herself to kind of, you know, to study these patients who were then kind of, you know, the word went around in the town. It's only about 10,000 people in the town. Um, so they all went to the same doctor. 400 went to her and four of them died. Other publications and other kind of outlets say uh, two people died in the plate, Operation Plate, as it's known in the kind of UFO world. But, you know, AJ says four. And I don't think there's anyone in the world that knows more about this case than he does in terms of ufologists, UFO researchers. So, uh, you know, let's go with AJ. So we're going to pick up this audio um, where he's describing um, the the shape of the craft, okay? So the aircraft, it's, this is a thing that started in 1975, went on, uh, continued 1976, and then it kind of reached its peak in September 1977, okay? He talks about this. But he's describing the craft, which basically looked like kind of little tins, like, uh, sorry, not little tins, massive, massive tins, tins big enough for each of them to carry two beings, yeah, two kind of like, you know, like, I don't know, I suppose um, biological beings, certainly some kind of intelligent beings flying around in these things that look like baked bean tins or like, um, you know, cans of beer or whatever, yeah? Um, so here it is. Here's AJ. They have this, this format, right? They would be like this with uh, two guys inside of it. And what was unique about them is that a, a beam of light would come from the bottom part of it and would hit people. Yes, and would burn people. Now, people who got hit by that beam of light, they said that they lost blood because they felt anemic and extremely weak. So one doctor decided to check it out, Velaidicecin, and she actually confirmed that out of the 400 patients that she attended, that she saw, all of them had missing blood. Because of that, and even be before that, this phenomena, this kind of object, would be called the suck-suck phenomena, or only the suck phenomena, because it be people believed, and it was true, that it was sucking blood out of them. Now, it, you didn't have where to go, even if you are inside your house, because most of the houses in the island are shacks, not made with bricks, but made with wood or sometimes bamboos or whatever. And people would be attacked even being inside their houses. The beams of light will go towards the walls, the very weak walls, and hit people inside of it. I have gone to the island of Colaris quite a lot. And I have been speaking with the witnesses that back in the 70s were attacked. And they say, well, Mr. AJ, it's tough. I never regained my vitality, my energy again. It's like it was taken from them forever. They have been felt like this for decades. Now, 
it became something very serious because hundreds of people were observing UFOs and it's estimated that at least 1,000 people were attacked. And not only people, but also horses, cows, dogs, sheep, goats, whatever. Except for the, that the animals would die. And out of the 400 cases that that doctor attended, four people died. Four people died. They would show to her office a clinic, a very small clinic. It's all very poor there, very low conditions, as you can imagine, in the middle of nowhere in Brazil. And they would have the wounds. The wounds would be from generally and from the upper arms and up, the shoulders, the thorax, and in and 75% of the cases, it were women who were attacked. Only 25% men. It became in 1975, but then six, in 1976, it got worse. And in 1st September 1977, it was very bad. So the community started to flee, escaping from the island. Out of 10,000 people that lived in Colares Island, which is a pretty big island in the Amazon, 9,000 went away. And the 1,000 that remained, they couldn't leave their houses because the boss of light would attack them. So they couldn't fish, which is their basic primary work. They couldn't plant. They couldn't do nothing. The food was missing. They couldn't do nothing. Then they decided to go to the government of the state of Pará. And when they went to the government, the government thought, well, this is something that comes from the sky. So let's talk to the Brazilian Air Force guys. And he talked to the commander of an airfield that is based in Belém, uh, like 150 kilometers from the island. And it was decided that an operation should take place involving from two to three dozen military men, all headed by this guy, who's Colonel Wiranger Holanda. And the operation started in September 1977. During that operation, over 2,000 pages of documents were produced by the military with the reports of the testimonies given by people. Over 500 black and white photos were taken and 16 hours of footage was produced. Not video, only eight millimeters and 16 millimeters video, all headed by this man. This military went to the island and they camped at one island beach, uh, Umaita, and then moved to another one, then to another one. During the day, they would talk to the victims and witnesses, and during the night, they would do sky watches with portable radars and everything. And their primary goal was try to register the phenomena as thoroughly as possible. And then, if not dangerous, if possible, try to engage in a contact with aliens, which they did. Now, this guy, 20 years after the Operation Saucer happened with Angel Landa, he decided to open his heart. Up to that moment, he has never given uh, any interview to anybody. But one particular day, he called me and said, Hey, AJ, I got to tell you that I admire what you're doing. And you have tried to find me before, make me talk, but I couldn't. I was... I was in a relationship with the Air Force, so now I am retired, and if you can come to my house, I will tell you everything about Operation Saucer, which I did. And when I met this man, I was impressed with his fresh memory of all the facts. He was a, a, a believer of, of UFOs since the beginning of the Operation Saucer, but he was not convinced that what was going on in that part of Brazil had anything to do at all with Operation Saucer, even though he went there and commanded the Operation Saucer that produced this kind of documents. Look at this. 2,000 pages of impressive reports made in a military format. These are maps 
showing the path of the UFOs according to the radio registry. And out of the 2,000 pages that were produced, we have about 400 released. You can have them all if you want, because this is for everyone, everyone who seeks the truth about the UFOs. People would describe that the light would come from the UFO and change, change its path. We're dealing with a technology we couldn't possibly imagine. Perhaps in 100 years, we'll make light to make turns. But not now. Some people say that Operation Saucer was closed. And officially, it is closed. But is it actually? No. I don't believe so. Let me tell you something. I told you that the, one of the main goals of the Operation Saucer was to in, try to engage, if there's no risk, with <clears throat> the and intelligences beyond the phenomena. Because there was already, and it is written in the papers, a notion that there was an intelligence beyond the phenomena. Now, if the goal, the objective, the purpose was to meet it, to contact it, when it happened, they shut down Operation Saucer? That can just be uh, reasonable. Because, I tell you that, because William Yolanda himself, it, 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 and with one of his men, he had a direct, close contact, eye to eye, with an alien occupant of one of the big spaceships. These are drawings that he made to me during our interview. And he described this machine, which was 100 meters high. It is here again. When they were in the Guajara River, this is the river. Here is how he draw. This is his signature. He's him in a small aluminum boat with a rear motor with one of his men. This boat, this river is about 70 meters wide. And they were coming to the other side of the island where the camping was located. But just before, just before they started to go, they, for their biggest surprise, saw this big spaceship, cylinder-like object, 100 meters wide, 100 meters in length, almost touching ground on the other bank of the river, over there. And out of a small door, in the upper part of it, an alien with that characteristics, just like a human person, with a casket over his head, white and black visor, and a white uniform. This guy, this alien guy, came out of the, the door in the top of this 100 meters object and floated, 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 and stayed right here, right in front of Wiranjolanda. But no dialogue happened, not even telepathically, only eye-to-eye -eye staring for a few seconds. Then the alien went back to the spaceship, and it went away. Now, as part of his duties, Wiranjel Holanda will have to go regularly to his commander in the city of Belém to report the, uh, the progress of the Operation Saucer. And when that close encounter happened, he was very excited. So he went uh, the other day to talk to his commander, Brigadier Protas Oliveira, who was a very smart guy, but when he listened to William Giolanda's report that they finally had a contact with an alien, he was astounded. And he decided, after a couple days of meditation in the subject, to shut down Operation Saucer. Why he took so long? Because he had to cancel people in Brasilia, the federal capital, because he had to cancel 
the military from the United States, remember, in 1977, we were in a dictatorship, dictatorship in Brazil, as well, most countries in South America, and it was all being run by the U.S. military and the U.S. intelligence. And of course, I had this confirmation, of course, it was the Brazilian military along altogether with U.S. military who took this decision and informed the Jolanda, shut down Operation Saucer. Get all the stuff, bring your men back to city, and don't speak about it to anyone. And he said, but commander, we made a contact. It may go on. Say, Colonel, don't talk about this to me anymore. Forget it and live your life. And the Operation Saucer was officially ended. But actually, it continued much more secretive and under military, U.S. military control. This caused Wiranjé Holanda to be very unhappy for the rest of his life. And maybe this is a corroborative thing that made him took his own life just after he gave me that interview. The interview he gave me was in 1997. He watched me in a TV program speaking about, I was labeled at last, A.J. Javard, hunter of UFO documents in Brazil, that kind of BS. And he watched that, and I was speaking about this all, and he wanted me to interview him, which I did with my co-editor, Marco Antonio Petit, and a few months later, he just killed himself. So isn't that incredible? And now we're going to listen to a witness in uh, one of those UFO shows that's linked in the uh, episode description. So here he is uh, talking about um, the experience of, you know, being hit by the lights. He went out to fish one night. He came back from fishing to this house and uh, he was sleeping. It was around 1 a.m. And he woke up and he saw the light aiming to his leg. Really? And he felt three uh, stings here. What did you do when you felt it? First, he wasn't able to move or to react. He was paralyzed. 15 minutes later, he started crying for help. And he yelled to his girlfriend, what happened, what happened? The lights just disappeared. And she said, you were attacked by an object in the sky that sent down a beam of light. They always came from the same direction, from a beach, and then they kept circling around town. And it was really fast, but it happened many times at night. What did you think it was? What did you think was happening? I don't say. He had no idea. The UFO attacks began that night. How long did it last? Did it continue? The UFOs were spotted for six months after he was attacked. Oh, wow. There were dozens of victims at the time. He was one of many. We thought it was just yeah. one night. Every night around 6 or 7 p.m., the lights would attack. Every night? Every night. So everybody was really, like, panicked. They would take their guns and they would try shooting at the lights. They didn't know what to do because they didn't know what they were up against. There was one doctor here who saw all the victims of these attacks. Yeah. That is such an extraordinary story, and you really wonder where we would be if they said, okay, brilliant, let's roll with this, baby. you got contact. Yeah. Get old floaty man back and, uh, you know, see where we go with it. And if, you know, ORSAP was uh, allowed to continue for more than a couple of years, you know, where would we be as uh, people uh, on the threshold of contact? Now, we're staying in Brazil for the Vagina incident. This is James Fox's new documentary. It's all about this incident, which is an incredible incident. It only happened in the mid-90s, and there's, you know, massive amounts of um, footage and, you know, coverage and, uh, you know, many, many witnesses. And essentially, on a stormy night in this place called Virginia in Brazil, uh, UFO crashed, and um, between five and seven beings um, got out and started wandering around the town. Um, at least two of them, I think, were captured. Um, and this links to us. I mean, it's an incredible, you know, 
story. And I'm really looking forward to James Fox's uh, film about it. Um, and it, I may do an episode about it, but it's very easy to kind of get information about the Vagina incident, um, which is a fascinating story. But it links to what we're concerned with in this episode, because one of the guys that was uh, working in the military police um, uh, had contact with one of these beings, one of these creatures, and he died uh, very soon afterwards. And essentially his uh, kind of immune system just broke down. That kind of, you know, thing that uh, is in the new um, Skinwalkers in the Pentagon book about the kind of autoimmune problems that people have. Shortly after the alleged incident, one of the soldiers who allegedly came into contact with the creature died. He was Marco Eli Sherezi, a 23-year-old plainclothes military police agent at the army base. His sister Marta is convinced that he was contaminated by the creature as he died only weeks after the alleged incident. He was involved completely with the police operation from start to finish and accompanied the creature from where it was captured to the Humanitas Hospital. He didn't get home till very late that night. When he actually captured the creature, he could have directly touched it, and this links with some reports I had that he could have been contaminated through the skin, not necessarily through a cut or infection. So because of this, there was a capture, and my brother did capture the creature, because there was originally nothing wrong with him. The doctor said no autopsy was necessary. Blood test results were available, however, and indicated that Marco's blood contained 8% of unknown toxic substances. So there you go. What to make of it? I mean, you know, it's so otherworldly. It seems that any kind of contact risks the uh, possibility of our own you know, very fragile biological, um, you know, beings as humans. You know, we're incredibly fragile beings. Um, you know, we risk being injured and, uh, you know, we risk illnesses through certain kinds of contact. And of course, this is just scratching the surface. This is some of the more famous, some of the more kind of obviously uh, eye-catching um, examples, you know, because of the illnesses and the deaths and the disappearances are so, you know, astounding. But of course, there are, you know, literally thousands of uh, kind of recorded testimonies of people who have uh, contact uh, or that there's some kind of, you know, paranormal event that happens to them and they come off the worse for it in one way or another. Um, like physically, you know, I'm talking about physical, uh, you know, injuries. Uh, now, a very interesting subject. It may, may be one that I come back to because, of course, I am just scratching the surface here. But lots and lots to think about. Now, uh, we're going to go into the bong bong bongs and then we're going to go into the archive. So that is, I like to I always like to wrap up, don't I? But it, it's, it doesn't really kind of make sense for me to do that. But it's a bit like Steve Wright or something. And that is uh, when UAPs make you sick. <laughs> Welcome to the archive. The archive is a loose collection of audio clips, <laughs> which I think if you were to, I don't think anyone's done this. I certainly haven't. Maybe you have. But if you were to uh, get all of the archives in a neat little row and listen to them, it will give you a bit of an idea of what's going on. Well, that's useful, isn't it? You'd hope so. In a paranormal podcast, yes. Now, now this is George Knapp, and he is now essentially kind of, you know, Maybe not nailing his um, colours to the mast, but maybe blue tacking on, but kind of with a bit of a weak push, a weak push blue tack on of the mast colours and saying, yeah, there's something up, isn't there? <laughs> and maybe it's the shadow biosphere, episode seven, by the way. Uh, so this idea that there's a tree of life that we haven't yet discovered which is, you know, kind of blossomed and is kind of manifested in many different entities, many different beings, but we lack the ability to perceive them 
under kind of like, you know, in our normal lives. And there's some people out there that have got the kind of ability to see them or um, pick them up, if you like, observe them or detect them or perceive them better than others. And also as technology improves, that helps as well. Okay. What is it? Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, when I first heard that story about people at the Pentagon thinking it was demonic, I thought that was preposterous. You can't make... But think uh, about the movie Poltergeist. Yeah, think about I know. all those things. You can't yeah. make policy, national defense policy, based on your religious beliefs, or you shouldn't. That's what I was thinking. But, you know, now you have to look at it. We don't know what it is. None of us know what it is. Maybe it is demons uh, or the equivalent of demons. I think it's something that's always been here with us. I, I don't think it's extraterrestrial. The technology that they've demonstrated, as Jacques Vallée, a friend of Colum and I, uh, has said, you know, it can bend space-time, which means they can be from anywhere. They can be extraterrestrial, interdimensional, all of the above. Uh, or they could live here, which I get the feeling that the, it's been here. And that's just my sense, but whatever it is, it lives here. It's been here as long as we have, probably longer, and it lives among us. You know, we like to say that uh, if the truth about UFOs, we're ready to hear it. You know, let us have it. We can handle it. Maybe so. Um, but the broader picture is going to be less uh, easy to handle. If people realize that there's something living among us that can enter our reality at any time at once and mess with us and often play mind games uh, and, and do things that harm our health, um, I'm not, and can see us all the time, like Santa Claus. It can see us in the shower. It knows when we're sleeping and knows when we're bad or good. Um, that's kind of freaky. If you have to say that to the American public, I think there's a lot of people that aren't going to be able to handle it. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to hear this. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people won't want to hear it. Maybe that's what Santa Claus uh, is based upon. George Knapp has got a terrifying vision of Santa Claus there, hasn't he? What a strange Santa. What a strange Santa. Um, so there we go. Uh, that is Mr. Knapp. Thank you very much, Mr. Knapp. And it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Can you hear the dog in the background? Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, share it, like it, tell your friends. And um, back with episode 10, a couple of weeks, realistically. Um, best way of contacting me is via Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter every day. I'm not engaging in the community as much as I would like to because of, you know, other commitments. Um, but I will try to update the uh, the episode zero, the uh, ongoing updating glossary, the ever-growing glossary. And um, yeah, so it just leaves me to say, see you later.